truth. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're going to be committed to expositional preaching, which is what we try to practice here at Walnut Creek, that means that we teach uh, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible. And that's a very good thing. I think that is what churches should do, but it means you can't really skip over anything. And as your pastor this morning, as the person who has to stand up here and preach, there is a big part of me that wishes we could just skip over Genesis 19. This is the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the, the reason that I have this instinct of like, yeah, let's just move on, <laughs> chapter 20, is because this really is one of the darkest, most disturbing stories in the entire Bible. It is hard to read. It's hard to explain. And so I wish we could just skip ahead, but we can't. Uh, God in his sovereignty has something that he wants to teach us today with this text. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the entire story. It's pretty long. We're going to read the whole thing, and we're going to look at four lessons from the story. So Genesis 19, verse 1, says, The two angels entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground and said, My lords, turn aside to your servant's house, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said. We'd rather spend the night in the square. But he urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and baked unleavened bread for them, and they ate. Before they went to bed, the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them, the entrance, and shut the door behind them. He said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said. Adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. Now we'll do more harm to you than to them. They put pressure on Lot and came up to break down the door, but the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so that they were unable to find the entrance. Then the angel said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here? A son-in-law, your sons and daughters, or... Any, anyone else in the city who belongs to you, get them out of this place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot, Get up! Take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out and left him outside the city. As soon as the angels got them outside, one of them said, Run for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has indeed found favor with you, and you have shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. 
The disaster will overtake me and I will die. Look, this town is close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Please let me run to it. It's only a small place, isn't it? So that I can survive. And he said to him, all right, I'll grant your request about this matter too and will not demolish the town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it, for I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zor. The sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zor. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. But Lot's wife looked back and became a pillar of salt. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain, and he saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. Okay, lesson number one. God is just, and God will judge. God is just, and God will judge. So the story about the rescue of Lot from the destruction of Sodom by God really is, in the larger narrative, like a cutscene. Like if we were watching a movie, this would be a cutscene. And what that means is that this is just a little mini-story that serves to illustrate something going on in the larger narrative, which is a narrative about Abraham. And what's happening in the story about Abraham is that God is teaching Abraham a very important lesson. This is what we looked at last week. So the story about Lot, it starts and it ends with Abraham looking over the valley and looking at all the cities of the plain. And in Genesis chapter 18, he's standing there with God and him and God are having a conversation. And what God is teaching Abraham is that he's just and he will judge. And God tells him what's about to happen in Sodom. This is the illustration of the lesson. God is just, God will judge, therefore God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities. And Abraham is struggling with this. You remember Abraham says in verse 24, chapter 18, what if there's 50 righteous people in the city? What if there's 50 righteous? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing that place for the sake of 50 righteous people who are in it? You could not possibly do such a thing. To kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike, you could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And we discovered in chapter 18 that God is not only just, He's also compassionate. God says, you know what? I will spare the wicked for the sake of the righteous. If there are 50 righteous people there, I will spare the whole place on account of them. Now, Abraham, he negotiates down. He says, well, what if there's 45? What about 40? What about 30? All the way down to 10. And God says, if there's 10 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. And one of the main lessons God is teaching Abraham through this whole scenario, and one of the main lessons he's teaching us as readers of his word is that God's standard for righteousness is not like yours. The way God perceives the righteous and the wicked is not the way we perceive it. Human beings, we tend to grade righteousness on sort of a weighted scale. So there's Adolf Hitler on the one end, and then there's Mother Teresa on the other end, and most people are somewhere in the middle, and if you're just a little bit above 50%, then you're righteous. 
That's not the way God views righteousness. God views righteousness as moral perfection. That's his standard. See, God is righteous. He is the standard for righteousness. And nobody is like God. He's holy. He's set apart. He's utterly morally pure. And that's his standard. It is a righteousness like his. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 14, the Lord looks down from heaven on the human race to see if there is one who is wise, one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. This is the exact psalm that Paul quotes in Romans chapter 3 where Paul says, there is no one who is righteous. Not even one person. So this is part of the lesson. God is holy. We are not. And often throughout the Bible, often, Sodom serves as the warning of God's coming judgment. You're not righteous. You're sinful. And God must judge you. And Sodom is the illustration of this. Jesus used this in Luke chapter 17 as his illustration. Peter used it in 2 Peter chapter 2 of his illustration that God is just and God will judge. Now, it's not a fun lesson. (laughs) It's not a happy lesson, but it's an important lesson. And it's the main lesson of the text. That much is clear. So if you begin to examine this, Genesis is such a beautiful book from a literary perspective. Now, I'm not, I'm not like a literature scholar, but if you, if you begin to look at the poetic elements of it, the, the use of literary features, it, it's pretty amazing how artistic it is. And even on a cursory level, if you just look at a, at a rudimentary, you can't read Hebrew or anything, but you just look at what the author is doing, you see this all over the place. And one of the places is in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is an exact parallel of the flood story on so many levels. So you remember in Genesis chapter 6, the world had become so wicked that God destroyed everyone and everything except one man and his family with a flood. He flooded the entire world as an act of judgment. And both the flood of Noah and the judgment of Sodom, they have all of these parallels. So in both cases, God's judgment comes after unnatural sexual activity. You remember in Genesis chapter 6, this was one of the main issues that God identifies. In both stories, God's judgment is rained down from the sky. In both stories, God's judgment is comprehensive, meaning everyone and everything dies. Now, the scale is different. In one case, it's the whole earth. In another case, it's the cities of the plain. In both stories, God saves only one person and his family that God deems righteous. In both stories, the righteousness of the man God saves is questionable at best. And in both stories, that quote-unquote righteous man ends up drunk and naked in a cave after God's salvation. This is what happens with Noah. We're going to look at this next week. This is, spoiler alert, this is what happens with Lot. And so there's all of these parallels. It makes it very clear that the author of Genesis is trying to underscore the fact that God is just and God will judge. And it begs the question, why is it so important for people to understand this? Why is this such a key feature of the first 19 chapters of Genesis, the justice of God. Well, the reason the Bible teaches is that if you get this wrong, the fact that God is just and God will judge, then you get everything else in life wrong. You think, really? (laughs) Doesn't sound quite right. It's true. If you get this wrong, that God is our ultimate authority, that God is perfectly just and he will judge each 
person, you get everything else wrong. And the reason is because God defines what is right and wrong morally. God defines what is good and evil. God is the author of life, which means we are accountable to him. He is the ultimate source of authority. This is why Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, verse 4, he says, I say to you, my friends, don't fear those who kill the body, and after that can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. This is why Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 1.7, he says, you can't even know anything (laughs) until you rightly fear the justice and judgment and authority of God. You can't understand what's true about the world, about how God works and how people work. It's that important. God is just and God will judge. Okay, but if that is true, then there's a tension point in the story. I don't know if you've identified it yet. If it's true that God will judge the unrighteous, And if it's true that every person falls short of God's standard for righteousness, all of us are liable to judgment because we've all sinned before a holy God, then why did God judge Sodom and Gomorrah so harshly? As far as I'm aware, there are no other places in the Bible where God rains down sulfur and fire on an entire civilization. So so why does He judge these cities this civilization so harshly. And this is where things get really uncomfortable. (laughs) This is lesson number two. Homosexuality is a grievous sin. You guys were hoping we weren't going to go there, but we we just have to. I I mean, we just, we have to go there. Now, to be clear, homosexuality is not the main reason for the destruction of Sodom. Okay, so why is this the second lesson in the story. Well, God destroyed the city because of complete moral decay. Okay, that's clear. Complete and utter moral corruption. It's just like when God destroyed the earth in the flood in Genesis 6. And what what does it say in Genesis 6, verse 5? When the Lord saw, okay, this is Genesis 6, the precursor to the flood. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. So just like in Genesis 6, the issue is not a particular sinful behavior. Like it's so bad, if you do that, boom, God hits the eject button. That's not the issue. It is complete moral decay of an entire society. But oftentimes... In the Bible, the final symptom, the signal of complete moral decay is homosexuality. And not just one instance of homosexuality. This is not just a subculture of it. There's a few people over here. It is cultural societal embrace of homosexuality. It is celebration by everyone of homosexuality, which is exactly what you have in Sodom. Verse 4 says, before they went to bed, the men of the city, listen to this, both young and old. So the, and then it says, the whole population, everybody. This is all inclusive, all of the men. Uh, and you got to imagine there's different demographics there. So he indicates age, but there's probably different socioeconomic demographics. 
There's people who are different occupations, different levels of prestige and influence in the community. He says every one of them. Every single one of them was there. They surrounded the house. So this is not just a derelict few. This is a societal embrace of homosexuality. And before we go on, I think it's, I want to be fair to the arguments against the point that I'm making. So there's many people who would disagree that homosexuality is the issue in Genesis 19. They would say, that's not the issue at all. What's obviously the most egregious sin here is the sin of rape. So it's non-consensual. They show up and they say, hey, give us the men. We want to have sex with them. And that's way, way worse than whether or not it's homosexual or heterosexual. It's non-consensual. That is the problem. And my guess is that all of us probably know some people who identify in this way, and very likely none of them are engaged in behavior like this. I mean, is that true? I know many, many gay people, and they're not doing stuff like in Sodom and Gomorrah. So this is the sin of rape. That's what's so ugly and dark about this. And of course, that's part of it, but it's not the whole picture. That's not the only thing going on here. It says in Jude, in the New Testament, Jude chapter 1, verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So certainly, the non-consensual nature, the fact that it's rape, the fact that it's sexual immorality, all of that is true and all of that is an issue, but it's not the only issue. Jude says it's unnatural desire. Now, what some people would say in response to Jude is they would say the unnatural aspect of their desire is the same as in Genesis chapter 6. So the issue is not that it's same-sex attraction. The issue is that it's men who want to have sex with angels. That's why it's unnatural. And that actually lines up with Genesis 6. In Genesis 6, you remember it's a very weird, difficult passage, but it says the sons of God who are fallen angels manifested in human form were having relationships with the daughters of men, human women. They were having children together. And God says, this is an abomination. This is a mess. And so this actually lines up with that. You say that the problem is the unnatural desire is that they desire angels. But there's two problems, serious problems with that interpretation. The first is that the men in the city didn't know these were angels. Okay, so that's number one. They thought they were just men. But the more serious problem is that Jude says Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities were all pursuing these unnatural desires. And the angels didn't go to Gomorrah. They didn't go to the surrounding cities. And so it's clear that this is not a a desire, a perverted desire for relationships with angels. It's homosexuality that is the unnatural desire, and it is an entire civilization that has embraced it. Now this begs the question, why does God take this particular sin so seriously? Why differentiate? I mean, there's so many sins. There's so many things that are wrong with the world and the human heart. Why does God take homosexuality so seriously? There's a lot of reasons. I'm going to give you two that flow out of the text of Scripture. Number one, because of the heart condition it flows from. So in Ezekiel, talks about Sodom all over the rest of the Bible, by the way, which is pretty interesting. You should just do a word search sometime. Just get Bible Gateway and search Sodom and you're going to learn a lot. But in Ezekiel 16, 
God says this, verse 49, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister, Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty. That means high, self-exalted. They lifted themselves up above others and did an abomination before me. Now remember, this is, this is symptomatic. Homosexuality is symptomatic of deeper societal sins. We're not talking about individual people. So the point that I'm about to make here is not that every gay person is proud and selfish and greedy and doesn't care about anybody. That's not the case at all. In fact, I know many gay people. I have gay people in my extended family, people that I used to work with at Principal Financial Group. Many of them are probably more kind than some of you here. Okay, so we're not talking about individual people. This is a societal, at a societal level. He says what, God says, what leads to this abomination, it begins with pride in the human heart. The sin of pride. And not pride like I'm proud to be an American because at least I know I'm free. Not that kind of pride. Pride that says God is not my judge. I have no authority but my own. And this is exactly the kind of pride that we see in Sodom. In verse 9, they say, get out of the way. Adding, this one came here as an alien, but he's acting like a judge. They are so offended. How dare you try to tell us what's right and wrong? How dare you try to tell us what to do? Pride cannot tolerate authority. It cannot tolerate moral standards except that are created by itself. You see this spirit in so many people. No one can tell me what to do. I make my own rules. It's a heart of pride. He says, they had pride, they had excess of food and prosperous ease. And we know from context, this is greed and it's selfishness. So they were very successful. They had a lot of money, they had plenty of food, and they did not aid the poor and needy. They kept it all for themselves. They didn't care about people. They had total disregard for human life. And again, the idea is Obviously not that every individual gay person is proud and greedy and selfish and has no compassion for the poor and needy. This is a picture, it's a portrait of an entire society that has embraced vice as virtue. That's the idea. Martin Luther, he said, sin is the self turned in on the self. What that means is that, that a heart that is just totally given to sin, it doesn't look at God. It doesn't look at who God is and what he's like and what he says. It looks away from God. And a heart of sin, it doesn't look at other people. So it doesn't look around the room and say, man, look at all these people. Think about all their needs. Think about all their fears. Think about all their hopes and their, their dreams and their affections and their relationships. Sin turns away from God. It turns away from other people and it turns inward. It just thinks about me. What do I want? What do I need? What do I say? What do I value? It is narcissistic by nature, which is why I think, this is, this is Darren, this is not the Bible, I think part of why homosexuality often is the signal or the symptom of a society completely given to sin is because it is a form of self-desire. That's what it, it's the self turned in on the self. Again, we're talking about society and culture broadly, not individual people. Individuals, as we're going to see with Lot, are much more complicated. Now, why else does God take this sin so seriously? Secondly, 
because it is an unashamed rejection of God's image, God's design, and God's command. And at this point, uh, we could break this into three separate sermon series. I mean, there's so much to say about God's image, God's design, and God's command, but I'm going to try to just share briefly on each one of these. Genesis 1.27, first chapter of the Bible, says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two observations. First, obviously, God made you, if you're a person, he made you to bear his image in the world. This is what it says in the very first chapter of the Bible. You exist to reflect the glory and the nature and the character of God. It is incredible. No other creature in the universe can do that, by the way. Not the elephants, not the zebras, not the hyenas, not the platypus, platypi, I don't know. No other creature. Only human beings, and every one of you sitting here this morning, you reflect the glory and the nature and the character of God in the world. And you do that as a man or a woman. As a man or a woman. This is what it says in Genesis. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. One sentence. This is one idea. So your maleness or your femaleness is inseparably connected to your image bearing. This is what Genesis teaches. This means men and women together embracing their God-given distinct roles are how God's image is revealed in the world. And this was the plan before sin, before the fall in Genesis chapter 3. And this includes your sexuality. It includes your sexuality. Genesis 2.24 says, This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. The two become one. Also before sin, part of God's design. And what we see in Genesis 2 is that part of God's design, you actually see it in Genesis 1 as well, part of God's design is sexual for your maleness and your femaleness. Now, it's obviously way more than sexual, but it's certainly not less than that. And God's design is that when a man and a woman come together sexually, something supernatural happens. They become one. They become one physically, emotionally, spiritually. Some theologians call this a mingling of souls. And this is why God's design for sex is only within the covenant of marriage, because it's so weighty. It's so serious. It's so solemn. It is so life-changing. When you come together sexually with another person, whether you like it or not, you become one with them. It bonds you to them. This happens spiritually. We also know now, modern science, uh, biology, that it actually happens physically. There are chemicals that are released in your body that bond you. They are bonding chemicals when you have sexual intimacy with another person. And so the Bible teaches you need the safety of commitment for sex to function as the blessing that God designed it to be. In addition to that, God has designed this union, this supernatural union in the sexual relationship, that from it, more life can spring forth. I mean, isn't that unbelievable? I have three children, so I've, I've been through this with my wife three times, and every time, it like blows my mind even more. I'm like, what? We made a person. 
This is crazy. <laughs> and every time you guys bring, you know, we have a young church and lots of little babies coming to church. Every time I see a newborn little baby, I'm just like, this is wild. You guys made a person. That's unbelievable. It is utterly supernatural and miraculous. This is how more people are made. It's through sex. And this was a major feature of God's command to Adam and Eve. In Genesis chapter 1, he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is part of what they were supposed to do. This is how God's image and God's glory are going to be propagated in the world. It's through procreation. Sex is not only for procreation, but that's a major reason for it. So homosexual sex, whether between two men or two women, it is a flagrant rejection of the entire sacred institution of the family. In a way, now listen, you're going to be offended by this. In a way that heterosexual sex outside of marriage is not. Both are deeply sinful. Okay, I want to be clear. Both are deeply sinful. Both are a rejection of God's design, but one goes way further than the other. That doesn't mean that we should be soft on sex outside of marriage for heterosexual couples. That is not what I'm saying. But I'm saying there is a reason. One goes further than the other. There's a reason why one ends up being often in the scriptures the signal, the sign of societal decay. Okay, again, not the only problem in Sodom and Gomorrah. The issue here is this is indicative of a culture that is completely upside down morally. They're inside out. They're totally backwards. They call good evil. They call evil good. They call darkness light and light darkness. And the reason that homosexuality is the hallmark of this type of culture is that it's so obviously wrong. Not only is it a rejection of God's design and God's command and God's image. It's so obviously wrong, not just morally, but even mechanically, practically, intuitively, it's wrong. The act itself actually doesn't make sense. It doesn't have the intended design of sex, both in terms of the fact that it's intended to be pleasurable for both people involved, and it's intended to have the potential to bring children into the world. And so you look at it, and you just think, it's it's so obviously wrong. It's so obviously not the way things are supposed to work. And so it is indicative of a society that is upside down morally. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that some people have same-sex attraction. The, the application here is not you go to your gay friends at work and on your street and that you run into in the coffee shop and you think, oh my gosh, this is a grievous sin. So we, we still need to view people the way God views people. You shouldn't be surprised by any sin that you encounter in the world. Just about every person, every person in this room, you have had and probably will continue to have perverse sexual desires. Okay, so don't, don't think, man, I'm glad, I'm glad I don't deal with that. Everybody is sinful. Everybody has sexual sin. We should not be surprised by this. What is meant to be shocking in the story is an entire culture that has embraced and is celebrating the perversion. That's the shocking factor. So God brings judgment. Lesson number three, God is merciful and God will save. God is just and God will judge, but God is merciful and God will save. Now here's a difficult question from the text. Does Lot, Lot is the one guy who's saved. 
Does Lot deserve to be saved in this story? No way. No way. I, I am a father of two girls. And the thing that is so hard for me to read about this is the fact that Lot, who's supposed to be the righteous one, he takes his two virgin daughters, which means they're young, they're probably teenagers, and he offers them to a gang of violent perverts. He says, do whatever you want to them. It is appalling. I want to jump into the story and beat him to death. I mean, I'm just like, what is he doing? What are you doing, Lot? And so it's very hard to understand how, how are we to understand Lot? Okay, so I've got to take a deep breath, exhale, let go of my emotions for a minute. And objectively, Lot is distinct in the story. Okay, so he is portrayed as distinct. He welcomes the angels with hospitality, he bows to the ground, he serves them. He treats them very similarly to how Abraham did in chapter 18. He does stand up to the men of the city, okay? He goes outside, he says, you guys, do not do this evil, even if he's a complete coward and a failure as a father. He is the only person in the story who obeys the command of the angels to leave, even if it's a little bit reluctant and slow. His sons-in-law, you remember, they think it's a funny joke. His wife turns back and is destroyed. So he is portrayed as distinct. But then 2 Peter, chapter 2, Peter says this, and he, if he rescued righteous Lot distressed by the depraved behavior of the immoral. For as that righteous man lived among them day by day, his righteous soul was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Peter says he's righteous. And you're like, what? <laughs> In what sense is Lot righteous? It can only be by faith. That's the only way this can make any sense at all. And in the flow of Genesis, there's been two righteous figures prior to Lot that are highlighted in the story. One is Noah, and one is Abraham, and they both have problems. You remember Noah, uh, he gets drunk and gets naked in, in, in the cave or in the tent, and uh, that's no good. And then Abraham, you know, he tries to give his wife away to Pharaoh, that wasn't good. The whole situation with Hagar, really bad. But these are the two righteous guys in the story. And Hebrews tells us that Noah was righteous by faith. Genesis itself tells us, Genesis 15, that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. Meaning God gave him righteousness. God made him righteous because of his faith. This is a big part of what we talked about last week, that no person is righteous on their own apart from God. Everyone deserves God's judgment because of sin. And so in order for God to show mercy and save someone from his judgment in hell, God has to make you righteous. He has to give you righteousness. And that happens by faith. That happens when someone recognizes their need and looks to God to save them. The New Testament reveals that the mechanism for God's salvation, the way God makes a person righteous, it's through something called substitutionary atonement which is kind of a fancy phrase, but it's actually a helpful phrase to understand. Substitutionary atonement, what that means is that God's wrath, God's judgment, His justice is aimed at you, okay? Because of sin. It's, it's aimed at you, and it can't just be dissolved. It can't just disappear because He's just. It has to be dealt somewhere. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus was the substitute for you 
on the cross. Jesus, the eternal sinless Son of God, absorbed the wrath of the Father and He died for you so that you could be set free and live. That's the gospel message. And so for Lot to be righteous, he must have understood and believed his need for God's salvation. I don't think he understood who Jesus was. I don't think he understood the cross, the resurrection. But he understood as much as Abraham that God had promised to bless him. That God was going to deal with his sin. And certainly the author of Genesis wants us to understand that God's salvation of Lot is an act of undeserved mercy and favor. But it's also clear from the story that Lot's character is much less developed than Abraham's. So he's righteous by faith, but he is morally weak because of compromise. He never should have went to Sodom. That's what we find out in Genesis chapter 13. It was not a good idea for him to go that way. He leaves the promised land, and he wants to go live in the countryside because it's lush and there's vegetation. Well, then the next time we read about him, he's in the city. And he's in the city that God has already told us is exceedingly wicked. So he's made some bad compromising choices. One commentator says this, in a word, Lot was a conflicted soul, at the same time both offended and allured by Sodom. He liked the prosperity, the comforts, the culture, and the prestige, but he was worn down by the filthy lives of lawless men and perpetually tortured in his righteous soul by the deeds he saw and heard. As such, he is the prototype and paradigm of so many believers today. We should be very slow to judge Lot. We live in a culture that is running towards looking like the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah, just sprinting towards it. And many people who claim to be Christians are not even bothered by it. It doesn't even bother them. Many people who claim the name of Christ actually join in celebrating it. And that doesn't mean that God can't save a person who is compromised. It doesn't mean that God will not show that person mercy. But being morally weak and compromised will take you places you never intend to go. And, and, and it will degrade. It's like somebody has to stand in the gap culturally. Or, or our culture will be entirely corrupted. Lesson number four. Sodom and Gomorrah. And we'll close with this. Don't look back. This is the Lord Jesus' application when he taught on this text. So this is going to be our application as well. Jesus said this in Genesis 17, or I'm sorry, Luke 17, verse 29. But on the day Lot left Sodom, this is Jesus speaking, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be like that on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a man on the housetop whose belongings are in the house must not come down to get them. Likewise, the man who is in the field must not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to make his life secure will lose it. And whoever loses his life will preserve it. If you're going to walk in faith, if you're going to trust in the mercy offered to you through Jesus Christ, if you're going to live as a Christian, then you have to let go of your old life. This is what Jesus is saying. You have to let go of it. You can't try to cling to what you have in the world. And there's a million different practical applications of this, but broadly it means it's an attitude of, God, my life is yours. My real life starts after this one in heaven. Which means, God, all of my possessions, they're all yours. All my time, it's yours. All my relationships, they're yours. 
My stuff, my home, my career, all of it, God, it is yours. You do what you want with it. And it means your values, God, are mine. God, your priorities are mine. Your affections are mine. Your mission is mine. That's the heart. And if you start to think about what that means practically in your decision making, you're going to think, uh oh. <laughs> it will be very costly. This is why Jesus says, you have to die. If you want to follow me, you have to die. You have to take up your cross the way Jesus took up his cross. That's a heart that has let go of the world. But two applications of that heart from Genesis 19. First, okay, this is really specific, and there's a million more. But from the story, first, stand firm on God's standard for morality. Now, I want to be clear. We preach the gospel here. A standard of morality will not get you into heaven. It just won't. So we don't beat our chests and say, I know what's right and wrong, and so I'm a better person than everyone. Nope. If you know what's right and wrong and you stand firm on God's morality, that should make you hate your sin even more. It should make you even more aware of how short you've fallen of God's standard. Only Jesus saves. Only God's grace and mercy are our hope. But that doesn't mean that God's commands and God's design are not important. We still celebrate God's standards. We still celebrate God's design and God's commands because they are what give life. And right now, there is immense, immense pressure in our culture to compromise on the issue of sexuality, like never before. I mean, I'm only 39 years old. I grew up post-sexual revolution. Okay, but the, the pressure right now culturally to give into the mindset, not only that, you know, love is love, all sex is good sex, but it's, it's not just that. Hey, leave me alone. Let me do what I want. Don't judge me. That's what it was 20 years ago. Now it's, no, you have to celebrate. You, you have to wear the t-shirts. You know, you have to wave the flags. You must celebrate or you are a bigot <laughs> or you are a weirdo. There is so much pressure, pressure culturally to compromise. And brothers and sisters, I'm just telling you, don't do it. Do not compromise. There are churches in Des Moines who preach the gospel who just in the last 10 years have totally changed their position on this issue. There are churches, big churches, in our city who ordain homosexual pastors unashamedly. And they do it. The reason they give is because of love. We just want to show love and mercy and acceptance to everyone. And the Bible says that's not love. That's not love. When you deny God's standard for morality, what you're saying is God is not just and he will not judge. He doesn't care. There's no consequences. That's not love at all. If you deny the judgment and justice of God, you are ensuring that people will go to hell. You're hiding the truth from them. We have to be clear about God's standards and call to people to repentance. Now, I'm not saying we should all boycott Target and go stand in picket lines and be jerks and get on the internet and troll people, don't do that. Don't be that person. That is so distasteful. Be winsome. Be tactful. Be respectful. Be kind. Treat people the way you would want to be treated. But agree with the Bible. Agree with the Bible. Stand firm on God's standard. So that's first. Stand firm on God's standard of morality with non-judgmental, compassionate love for the surrounding culture. 
My guess is you probably have like a million questions, especially those of you who have close friends, family members. Many of you have probably immediate family members who have some kind of same-sex attraction, transgenderism, whole gamut of things. They identify as something that's apart from God's design. And you're thinking, what do I do with my son or my daughter? What do I do with my brother or my sister? What do I do with my coworker who I literally share a desk with? Like, like how, how do I stand firm but love them and show them kindness and the love of Jesus? We could talk for another two hours about that. So here's what I'm going to suggest. is uh, We have a, an equipped class that we're putting on. I think it's in October. The registration is not up yet. But on this issue, on issues of human sexuality, transgenderism in our culture, and how to engage as Christians, Sean McDowell uh, is coming in. He's going to be speaking, and he's written several books on this. He's an excellent, excellent resource. I would highly recommend whether or not, whether or not right now you have someone in your life who you have these questions about, you're going to, okay? (laughs) This is not going away. You're going to have someone who is meaningful to you, who you love, and you want to make an impact in their life. And you're going to have all kinds of questions. What do I do if someone's married and they have adopted kids? Like, how do you share the gospel with that person? How do you, what standard, how does God view that? A lot of questions. Come to that equip class. We want to help everybody think through this biblically, but let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. And um, God, I pray that as we think about this story, it would, the thing that would strike us most is your mercy. God, the whole world deserves what Sodom and Gomorrah got. We really, God, God, we deserve your wrath. We deserve your judgment. And, let, and yet, God, you've been patient and merciful and you've redeemed us. God, when I think about who I was apart from Christ, it was ugly. It was vile, God. The things that have gone through my head, things that I've done, and I think every person, if they're honest, That's how we have to view our lives. So help us not to be judgmental. God, but help us to hold the line unashamedly. Your design, your commands, your image, they should be celebrated. God, we should shout it from the rooftops, who you are and what you've done and how you've designed the world. God, thank you for your grace. Help us to represent you well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to...